0: Thank you, thank you, Jonathan. Good morning, my name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. If you've not been with us over the last few weeks, we're in the middle of a series that's going to take us all the way to Easter, which is very, very late this year. Uh, That is, we're journeying uh, with Jesus toward the cross through the Gospel of Matthew. And this week, we come to passage in Matthew chapter 26, where Jesus goes to trial uh, before Caiaphas in the council, the Jewish leaders. And so if you have a Bible and you'd like to follow along with us, you can. We'll be reading verses 57 through 68. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. It's printed for you in your worship folder. It'll also be on the screen behind me. And you can follow along as we read together this morning. Okay, Matthew 26, beginning in verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest, where... The scribes and the elders had gathered, and Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. Then they spit on his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? This is God's word. We are now in the last hours of Jesus' life. He's been arrested and is been taken before Caiaphas, the high priest of Israel, to be put on trial. Uh, It it really is, in many ways, the culmination of something that's been going on, a thread that's kind of been going throughout the Gospel of Matthew, that Jesus, through his life and ministry, um, has met with the disapproval of the religious leaders. They've accused him many times of blasphemy or of violating the law or such things, and have been plotting from very early on how to get rid of him, and they finally found a way to do it. Uh, They found a traitor, Judas, who sold him for 30 pieces and handed him over to him. And now they have gathered to put him on trial and to convict him. So there's just two things this morning that I want us to meditate on from this passage. And they're really just these two two taglines that I think will be helpful. The first is I want us to see that the passage really is teaching, or we see in the passage anyway, that the innocent is being condemned by the guilty. The innocent is being condemned by the guilty that there is really there's there's a great deal of injustice that's happening in this scene. Jesus is being wrongly tried and convicted. And so the innocent are the innocent is being condemned by the guilty, but then the second point that I want to make that we'll ultimately come to is the reason why God would allow the innocent to be con- condemned by the guilty is that the innocent was being condemned for the guilty. And that's really where the gospel comes in to what is being taught to us through this passage, that so there's a problem with forgiveness, uh, that God is at log, loggerheads, and so the only solution is that the innocent would be condemned in the place of or for the guilty. So those are the two points. The innocent condemned by the guilty, the innocent condemned for the guilty. Let's just start, if you would, come to the text, and let's look uh, about, and see just how unjust this whole thing is. Everything about this scene is wrong, and people have written books about this, who are lawyers and doctors and jurisprudence and all those kinds of things. We have a few of those in the room. They probably could tell you from a cursory glance at what was recounted here, everything, everything about this is shady. Right? The law mandated that a trial like this be held during the day, but this is all happening in the middle of the night. There's a secretive element to it, right? It's happening at Caiaphas' house. Not typically the place where Cases like this would be tried. The witnesses do not appear, if you look, to have been interrogated properly. The the officials that are kind of overseeing the whole thing don't really seem to be concerned whether their testimony is true or false, but just that they can round up two witnesses who can agree to a damaging report about Jesus. That's really what seems to be what they're interested in. The law required two witnesses. So in verse 60, you see that two eventually come forward. But you you get the feel, you know, that there's very little care being taken here, right? I mean, there's very little concern for the proper mechanics of a trial. It's hasty. Uh, there's definitely the feel that these men, and especially Caiaphas, have an agenda and cared very little about the truth. They just want to be rid of Jesus. And they saw this as their chance, and they're going to take it. Now, at, at issue, okay, at issue is really Jesus's identity and who he is and who he claims to be. So you'll see, if you work through the passages, there are three different... Messianic titles that are, that are asked of him or that he ascribes to himself here. So, this is really what is at issue. Are you the Messiah? Are you the anointed one? Caiaphas says. So, the three messianic titles in verse 63, he asks Jesus, Caiaphas says, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ. And that word, Christ, is a Greek word that really is kind of a transliteration of a Hebrew word that really means anointed one. It's, it's a word for being anointed. And in the scriptures, especially in the Jewish nation, the leaders who fulfilled specific roles in the life of the people were anointed. So the prophets were anointed for the prophetic office. The kings were anointed for their kingly work. The priests were anointed to be priests and to carry out that work among the people. But, this, but all of that gets wrapped up into this idea that in Isaiah, as we've been reading, that an anointed one, capital A, would come who would be this special um, messenger and worker of the lord god who would come as prophet priest and king to rule over his people and to bring about the salvation of the earth and the renewal of all things and caiaphas wants to know are you that guy are you the one that we're all waiting for are you the christ but look there's a second title he says are you the christ verse 23 excuse me verse 63 the son of god and don't get tripped up on that that's not he's not asking for a claim of divinity the kings were considered the sons of God. He wants to know if Jesus considers himself a king. Are you our king? Are you the Davidic king that we're looking forward to? Do you claim to be royalty? Not divinity, but kingship really is what is at issue there. And then in verse 64, Jesus kind of lets the cat out of the bag. He says, when, when he finally says, I adjure you, tell us if you are the Christ Jesus says, you have said it so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the son of man. And that's another Messianic title, seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And that really is a, a reference from Daniel chapter 7, and we'll get into the details of that in just a minute. But there's Messianic overtones in that Son of Man title as well, of one who in Daniel 7 is going to come in the clouds of heaven and be given all authority and power in a kingdom that will never end. And so this is what's at issue, is, is who, who really Jesus believes himself to be, or who it's, it's reported that Jesus is saying he is And what we see in verse 65 is that they saw this claim, and especially when Jesus kind of speaks up in verse 64, Caiaphas says, He has uttered blasphemy. And so, really, the charge is this charge of blasphemy. And that's a really important word, it's a really important concept for us to understand. Because in the Bible, to blaspheme meant to make much of yourself, and by making much of yourself, to make little of God, or to put yourself in the place of God, or to make yourself equal with God, or to exalt yourself, and by doing so, you would be demeaning God, not showing him the reverence that is due him. That's the charge. They see Jesus' claim as being the Davidic king, the son of man from Daniel 7, as a blasphemous reality. He's making little of God by, in many ways, making himself on par with God. But what's amazing, what's amazing is... It's if you look closely, and what I think ultimately the passage is trying to teach us is, is that all of the hatred, all of just the stuff that's going on here, they hate him, and they, they want him dead, and they want rid of him, but, but it's not because he's a blasphemer. That's not really at, at the heart of things why they're so upset. They're not so upset and want to be rid of him because he's a blasphemer. They're so upset, and they want him dead because they're blasphemers. See, that's what's being revealed in the text. I mean, Because, okay, if blasphemy was the only charge against Jesus, then Caiaphas and the council could have dealt with it. They were were given the right by their Roman rulers to deal with that sort of religious charge. But if you know the story, you know that as the night progresses, they send Jesus to Pilate, and then he goes to Herod and back to Pilate and all this kind of stuff. Because they want Pilate to enact the death penalty, they don't just want him punished for blasphemy, they want him dead. Why? I mean, why do they hate him so much? I mean, what? what's really behind all of this that's going on here, all of the injustice and the way they're, they're bending the rules and manipulating the, the circumstances to get their will done? And that's the deeper question the passage invites us to ask. And I think there's a general answer, and then there's a more specific answer, okay? So the general answer and a more specific answer to why they're so upset. The general answer. In verse 64... Jesus kind of lets the walls down, and he makes an incredible claim. He says, I am the Son of Man from Daniel 7. Now let me just read this prophetic passage from Daniel 7 to you for just a minute. So Daniel 7, 13 and 14, just listen. Here's what the prophet Daniel says. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. He came to the Ancient of Days, which is the figure of God Most High, and was presented to him, and to him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom... That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Now, when Caiaphas hears Jesus refer to this passage and refer to himself in it, he tears his clothes, which is a physical act of shock and consternation, and he calls it blasphemy because he understands. I mean, he understands very well the implications of Jesus' statement. That Jesus, he's, Jesus is saying, "I'm not just some political figure who has a, a, a small following. I'm, I'm not just a rabbi with a with a particular teaching. I am the living God of heaven and earth, who possesses all authority and all power. But see, there's a, there's something specific. There's a specific answer." And that is that when Jesus claims to have all authority, he's claiming to have authority over them. I mean, it's right here. It's right here. Look at verse 61. And what the two witnesses claim to have heard Jesus speak. Verse 61. This man said, they say, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now let me ask, who's in charge of the temple? Caiaphas. Caiaphas and the council are in charge of the temple. Jesus' Jesus's statement is clear. He, you know, in fact, in reality, they are they are misquoting him here. He never made that statement, by the way. But the implication of what he's taught over and over again is he's he's been very clear. Jesus has claimed throughout his ministry, excuse me, throughout his ministry to have authority over the temple. Remember what he does when he comes into Jerusalem? Where does he go first? He goes to the temple, and what's he do there? He rearranges the furniture, and he says, "This is my house." That's why they're so upset. Jesus' presence, his ministry, his teachings is undermining the authority of Caiaphas and the council. They're losing power. They're losing influence. They're losing face. And when Jesus starts messing with the temple, which is the locus of Caiaphas' power and authority, then he has to be done away with. And Caiaphas wants to know. He says, are you the anointed one? But remember, Caiaphas is high priest. He's anointed too. So this is a showdown, isn't it? I mean, there's all kinds of dynamics going on. Caiaphas is high priest because he, was, because he was established as high priest by the Roman authorities. If you remember in other gospel accounts, when they arrest Jesus, they first take him to Annas' house, who's Caiaphas's father-in-law, who was a, the, the high priest before Caiaphas. And what's fascinating about all of the dynamics of that is in Jewish law, a high priest was high priest until he was... Until he was, you know, he died. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, wow, I apologize. <clears throat> Annas is still alive, and yet the Romans have taken away authority from him and given it to Caiaphas. So here's Caiaphas, who's acting as high priest, even though he doesn't have the authority of the high priest Inside of the Jewish people. And so when they arrest him, they even take him to Annas first. So there's all these political dynamics going on that Caiaphas is in the middle of, and it's just swirling around him, and he wants to know, are you the anointed one? Because, buddy, I'm, I'm the anointed one too, and so this is a showdown, and the showdown is really about who's the boss. Is Caiaphas the boss of Jesus? Is Jesus the boss of Caiaphas? Who really has power over the other? That's what Caiaphas wants to know. Now, I really believe that the clue to understanding all that's happening in these verses, for me anyway, and applying them to our lives, is Peter's interpretation of them in Acts chapter 4, which is our call to worship, which is why I put it in there for you. So if you want to look at that, you can. But in those verses, when Peter talks about kind of the the, the events that we're looking at here in Matthew 26, he quotes Psalm 2, which just reads like this. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? They take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now let's slow down for just a minute and look at this. This picture that the psalmist in Psalm 2 is trying to paint for us, which Peter quotes, is the earthly kings and rulers taking war counsel together to, to determine how to overthrow God, to unshackle themselves is the, kind of the metaphor that, that he uses, to unshackle themselves from his rule and his control and his authority and to set themselves up in his place. So what the psalmist is trying to get us to see is that the characterizations of the nations here in Psalm 2 is really just a picture of every human heart, that this is your heart and mine. The psalm says that the, the nations of the earth, they rage. There's rage, which is a violent, uncontrollable anger. In other words, the psalmist is trying to help us see that there's something inside of us we hate. We, every single one of us, we hate the idea that God is calling the shots, that he has every right to stand over us and to tell us what to do and not to do and we will stop at nothing to overthrow him we rage we plot we counsel together to get out from underneath his authority peter says that this scene here in matthew 26 57 through 68 is a fulfillment of that psalm 2 passage that the kings and the rulers of the earth in this case caiaphas and the council and later pilate and herod and all the parties involved are gathering together to conspire against God and his Messiah to overthrow him. That's what Peter says is happening. And that also means that these verses are really a parable of our hearts. That these verses right here in Matthew 26, they show us what's really going on. What really is at the center of the interior of our lives. How we rage against God in our anger and resentment and discontent. How we scheme and plot to keep control of our lives and to keep control of him that's really what we want and Jesus told a parable earlier in Matthew's gospel in Matthew 21 that illustrates this perfectly I think the parable goes something like this he says there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and when the time for the harvest came he sent his servants to the tenants of the field these tenants just as an aside were people who lived on the property and worked the land but did not own the property they worked for the owner so they received part of the, the harvest as the share of their wages Now when the servants of this master came to the tenants, they mistreated them and even killed some of them. And it was so bad, eventually the master decides, you know, the only way I'm going to get around all this trouble is to send my own son. And this is where Jesus really opens our hearts to us. Because the master thought they will treat him kindly, but we're told that as the son of the master came near the tenants, they said to themselves, look, it's the heir. It's the one who owns these fields. Let's kill him. And by killing him, we can have the inheritance for ourselves. And they killed him. Now what's the story about? It's a story about how far we will go to, be, to rule and not to be ruled. That the tenants in Jesus' story were not satisfied with being stewards. They wanted to be king. They wanted to be rid of the master so that they could rule in his place. And what Jesus is teaching us there, and what the psalmist is teaching us in Psalm 2, and what this passage which Peter reflects on in quoting Psalm two in Matthew twenty six is telling us is that this is the natural inclination and the overriding desire of every single one of us in this room to live like that. I don't know if you saw the Matt Damon movie Invictus, which came out a few about um, maybe a year ago now, but the title of the movie is uh, a take on a poem written by a man named William Ernest Henley, and the reason that the movie's given the title is because the poem Invictus is a poem that Nelson Mandela really reflected on and memorized when he was in prison for all of those years in South Africa and then came out and it was kind of something that he kind of feasted his soul on that really kind of encouraged him and and, you know kind of uplifted him in the face of such despair but the poem Invictus by William Ernest Henley goes like this and I'm just going to read it to you try to follow along with me as I do this here's what this man says who is not a Christian at all in any sense of the word poem Invictus goes like this Out of the night that covers me Black as the pit from pole to pole I thank whatever gods may be For my unconquerable soul In the fell clutch of circumstance I have not winced nor cried aloud Under the bludgeonings of chance My head is bloody but remains unbowed Beyond this place of wrath and tears Looms but the horror of the shade He's talking about eternity now And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. Listen, he says, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. He's talking about the day of judgment. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. We read that together in our preaching meeting this week and we just said, wow. Right? I don't know whatever gods are out there. You know, It doesn't really matter anyway. They have no claim on me. I'm unconquerable. I mean, look at all the bad things that have happened in my life, the bludgeonings of chance that have bloodied me, but I can tell you my head may be bloody, but it's still unbowed. You've not gotten the best of me. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. I call the shots, not you, not anybody else, me. And if ever this is threatened, watch the violence and the raging and the plotting to keep control I think we've been memorizing this in Romans 8, if you've been memorizing with us together, where Paul says in Romans 8, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Right? There's hostility. You don't know me. You don't, you don't tell me what to do. I tell me what to do. And the irony is, is we applaud people like the poem Evictus describes. And when we go to the movies and we watch their stories and we just marvel at, at the, hum, the, the human spirit and the will that's there, you know we just marvel at that, but what the Bible would teach is that, that, is that this obstinacy, excuse me, this obstinacy of heart that's described by that man, this unconquerable soul, this obstinacy of heart, unwilling to bend the knee, that it's the cause of everything that's wrong in the world. that our unrelenting insistence on, be, on being the ones who are calling the shots, that that's what's gotten us into so much trouble. And that's what makes Jesus so different from us. You see, you don't see that, You don't see any of that in him. He's the God of heaven, the exalted king of the universe, and you would, you would never hear those words coming out of his mouth, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. Never. Would, he, he, would, he doesn't live that way. He's the exact opposite of that. And so what we see in this passage is we are the blasphemers, not Jesus. We're the ones who exalt ourselves above God and try to rule him. Caiaphas and the council aren't upset because Jesus is a blasphemer who's claiming to have a divine authority. They're upset because they're blasphemers and Jesus is thwarting their godlike ambitions. And he's being unjustly condemned. I mean, the evidence does not condemn him. Their hatred and their desire to be rid of him caused them to manipulate the evidence. Their minds are already made up. There's absolutely I mean, look, there's absolutely no objectivity on their part here. They hate him. They spit on him and treat him like a human piñata because they can't bear the thought of being ruled by him. That's what's going on here. And so I just want to apply this. Okay? I I want to apply this in two different directions. First, a word to to non-Christians. If you're here and you're not a Christian or you're thinking about what, you know, you're, you're kind of counting the cost of Christianity, I want to ask, do you know that in your heart you want to be rid of Jesus too? Do you realize that you hate the idea of him having authority over you and telling you what to do and what not to do? In your heart... You're raging and plotting how to overthrow him. And it's quite a problem to have because no matter how hard you might try to deny the reality, there's something inside of you, if you listen closely, that knows it's true. That in the fleeting moments before you fall asleep at night, it's there. God really does own me. And I really have to give an account to him. And I really must bow my knee to him. And if you're deciding whether or not to become a Christian, the problem is not the evidence. (laughs) You don't need more information. The problem is not the evidence. The problem is your rebel heart. And I remember when Sarah, my youngest, who, when she was born, Ashley claims in the hospital, she said this child is different than all the rest. And I remember when she was a little, a little I mean, one or something, and we were trying to teach her to. It was as if literally the hinge on her neck that went this way did not uh, work properly, or she came out of the womb with some defect, because she could very. I mean, this worked, right? Sarah, eat your vegetables. And, and it really became, do you remember, it really became an issue of, of parenting, and having to parent her. I mean, literally, it was almost as if you had to take her head and nod it for her, because she could not do it. Sarah, you will go to your room right now, right? It's, I mean, all of a sudden, her neck became jelly, because she could not, she just refused. And that's a picture of your heart and mind. but a word to Christians, too. As you wrestle through the process of sanctification, right? As God begins to continue the work, in other words, of, of making you more and more like Jesus, as you think, if you're here and you follow Jesus and you've made a commitment to trust Him and rest in Him and follow Him, where are you raging? I mean, as you come here week after week and we talk through the Scriptures together, I just wonder, what's the issue in your life? You know, as we talk through the Bible, that it's like, you know, when you go to the doctor and the doctor hits the nerve. <laughs> Right, where, and where's the raging and the plotting? No, I'm not, no. You can, no, no, that's not, nope, that's not, nope, we're not talking about that, nope. Because you see, the way Jesus completes the work of, of sanctification is to subdue you to himself and to rule you. That's what the catechism teaches, and that's what he's going to do. Now, I've got to finish quickly, but I want us to see that Luke in Acts 4 says that all of this happened because God planned it. If you look there closely in verse 28, it says that he predestined it to take place, and his hand accomplished it. In other words, not only did God allow this to happen, he planned it. In all the raging and plotting, the religious leaders in Israel and Pilate and the whole bunch were just accomplishing what God had purposed from all eternity to happen. So why would God do that? Why would God allow Jesus to be treated like this? Why would he actively orchestrate that Jesus be unjustly tried and condemned, the innocent, condemned by the guilty? And there's only one reason, and that is that the innocent was condemned by the guilty because the innocent was being condemned for the guilty. Jesus was unjustly condemned. There was no evidence to support his condemnation and overwhelming evidence to support his acquittal. I mean, this charge of blasphemy, he wasn't the blasphemer. The religious leaders were, and you and I are, yet the innocent was condemned as guilty so that the guilty could be declared innocent. See, that's what's going on here the fundamental human problem is that we stand before God guilty of treachery and rebellion. And there is no evidence. Can I just, I know you know, I, let me just give you insight into my life. There is no evidence that supports my acquittal. None. I can be a nice guy sometimes. But at the end of the day, there is absolutely no evidence that supports my acquittal. Ask my wife. Better yet, ask my mother-in-law, ask my friends who know me well. There's overwhelming evidence that supports my condemnation. And yet because of the work Jesus is doing right here in this passage, and eventually by going to the cross, the verdict comes down not guilty. Now how is that possible? How is that possible? If you have a worship folder, I'd like for you to come to Romans 3 for just a minute as I come to a close. But it's your assurance of pardon. It's the reason I put it in there. There's a huge problem for God in this very thing. And it's right there in Romans 3. It's what Paul's meditating on. Paul's asking the question, how can God forgive sin and still claim to be a God of justice? Because because he's a God of justice, he has to punish sin. And if he doesn't, then he's not just, he's not good, he's corrupt. In other words, Paul says, he, you know, he's, excuse me, in his forbearance, he's passed over sins. But he can't continue to do that. He can't just pass over sin and not deal with it so there's a problem. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you might remember the scene where the white witch appeals to to Aslan for Edmund's blood, and she says, do you really think, they they begin, you know, she says, I'm going to take him, and then so they pull out their swords, whoop, they pull out their swords and they kind of get ready for battle, and she says, do you really think that your master can rob me of my rights by mere force? He knows the deeper magic better than I do. He knows unless I have blood, as the law says, all Narnia will be overturned and perish. Now what C.S. Lewis is getting at is that no matter how much God loves, he can't just overlook sin. It would be criminal. And so God has a dilemma. He has a big dilemma. He loves us, and he wants to be reconciled to us, but he's also just, and his justice demands that he condemn us and carry out his sentence of death upon us. And this is exactly what Paul's wrestling with in Romans 3. And the solution he comes to, the solution the Bible gives for this problem is just this. Look at verse 25, that God put forth Jesus as a propitiation By his blood. That's a big theological word that refers to a sacrifice that takes away God's wrath. Paul is saying, Jesus stood in our place and took the wrath that was ours to bear. He bore it for us. In other words, God loved us so much that instead of condemning us, he sent Jesus who was condemned in our place. Get this this is the gospel. Jesus got what we deserve so that we might get what he deserves. Jesus was innocent, yet was condemned so that we who are guilty might be forgiven and welcomed into God's family. And what the white witch didn't know, what the children found out on the other side of Aslan's resurrection, in his words were that there was a, deep, a deeper magic that she knew nothing about, that when a willing victim who, was, who, who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, that the stone table would crack demands of God's justice would be satisfied and so what we see here is that Jesus was unjustly condemned so that we could be unjustly forgiven and reconciled to God but here's the turn of phrase that you want before you call me a heretic for putting it that way I want to say it like this if your faith is in Jesus Christ then it is not unjust for God to forgive you hear me it would be unjust for him to refuse to forgive you Whereas before his justice demanded your condemnation, get this, now that very same justice demands your justification. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive. Whereas before God could do nothing but condemn us now because of the work of Christ, he can do nothing but love us and accept us and forgive our sins. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, then God must Forgive your sins. Why? Because Jesus has already died to pay for them. That, no, that, that's appropriate. And the satisfaction the justice of God demands has been met in him. And so Paul can truly say from Romans 8, 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, let me apply it this way, and then let's close. I just want to talk to you about fear for just a minute as we apply this last uh, phrase. Again, to those of you who are here who have not yet made a commitment to follow Christ, let me just ask you a question. Do you realize, this is the trial, right? We're looking at Jesus' trial. Do you realize, if you're not a Christian, if, you're not, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus and you're not resting in him, do you realize that at the great judgment you will enter the courtroom of heaven? Do you realize that your destiny is in appearance before the judge of the universe? And I want to ask you diagnostic to kind of get behind that, to, see, to help you answer that question. When you consider that, does it cause you any pause? When you think about that, are you afraid at all? Can I just tell you as your friend, if you're not, that's a dangerous spiritual condition. Earlier in Matthew, Jesus said in verse 28 of chapter 10, Don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. The Bible is very clear. That it is necessary and appropriate that we fear God. We should be afraid of the threat of God's wrath against our sin. And if you're not in Christ. And you stand outside of him. If you're not afraid. If the thought of standing before God doesn't cause you to lose sleep. Be careful. But to Christians. To those of you who have. Professed your faith in Christ and are following him. Let me ask you a question. Do you. The exact opposite, see, if you come into faith in Christ, do you, Christian, realize that you're out of the courtroom? Or do you still live every single day as if you're still in the courtroom? You're on trial, there's prosecution, and there's the defense, and everything you do, you're stamping evidence for the prosecution or evidence for the defense. And some days you're winning, and some days you're losing. You're living in that sense as if your performance leads to the verdict. And let me ask you a diagnostic question. Let me just ask you a diagnostic question so you can answer that question That I just asked, do you, Christian, do you live with an overriding sense of fear or insecurity or anxiety? It depends on the translation, but it's something like 12 or 13 times in the 14 chapters we just finished reading in Isaiah 40 through 54. God says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't fear. Don't be afraid. So we've got to ask, where does all the fear and the anxiety come from? And if you boil it down and get behind the issues to the real issue, it all really comes down to this. It's a question of, is God really for me? I was talking to a friend of mine who is a pastor recently who's thinking about leaving his job and going to another church, but he's afraid, he's so afraid, He's scared to death. You know. Will his house sell? Will his wife and his kids thrive in the new city? It, you know, it, it, Is everything going to work out exactly the way it needs to? And he's just so anxious, he, he, need, he wants there to be a plan, he wants to, every little detail to be worked out so that he didn't have to live on faith. And when I pressed him about it, we were together recently, and he admitted, I, you know, I really, I really, I realize I just really don't trust God. You know, I was talking to one of the ladies going on the mission trip to Nicaragua a couple weeks ago, and she was just expressing being very, just really struggling with anxiety and fear, and I was just asking her questions, and she began talking about all the things that made her nervous. You know, what if somebody got sick and they had to go to the hospital? You know, they don't speak English in those hospitals, right? Would it be a nice hospital? Would it be sterile? You know, (laughs) and on and on. You know, you can just go to the bottom of these things, and if you look deep enough, the real issue is unbelief. You know, we don't know God's for us. We don't believe he's good and that he loves us and he'll take care of us. And so John Owen, a Puritan pastor and theologian, has this great sentence, and I'd say this in closing. That he says, although the, great, the greatest difficulty in the Christian life is believing that the Father loves you, you commit your greatest sin by not believing that he really does love you. I mean, why is it so hard to believe that God loves you? Because there's so little evidence that supports your acquittal and so much evidence that demands your condemnation. But do you see what's behind your calculation? You still believe that your performance leads to the verdict, but the gospel is the exact opposite. The verdict comes first. And if your faith is in Jesus, you can be confident of God's love because it doesn't depend upon your performance. You're out of the courtroom, you're not on trial anymore because Jesus went to trial. He was innocent. And yet was condemned so that those of us who were guilty could be accepted and approved. And that's why John Owen says it's a great sin to not rest and receive. Rest and receive. Rest. In the love that God has for you in Jesus. It's unbelief. And we need to repent of it. And So if you're a Christian, don't be afraid. Look at Jesus. Look at him here. They're spitting in his face and hitting him. Why would God permit himself to suffer such incredible heartbreak? Why there's only one reason, and that is that the greater agony was the thought of having to live without you and me. I mean, that's the truth of God's love. And so let's pray that together this morning. Lord Jesus, we stand amazed that you, who deserved worship, was despised and rejected. you who were guilty of nothing, you were declared guilty so that we who have no claim on innocence could be made righteous, that we could have the verdict of not guilty passed over our lives and that we could be received and welcomed into your family. Lord, help us. Help us to grasp the things that we dare to claim to be true. And help us to sing now out of an overflow of joy that you might be glorified in our worship, that you might be glorified in our resting. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen, amen. Two things for you that are happening right after the service. The first is if you're excited or interested in going to Nicaragua conference room, Jonathan, right? Right through this door, there's a conference room. Meet him in there. The other thing is, is we're doing a community garden together as a church. We've already cleared the land. It's out here. And if you're at all interested in doing that with us, you need to meet with Carrie Katie out there by the garden for a few minutes after the service. So be aware of those two things, okay? Now, the gavel of God's justice came down on Jesus, declaring the innocent guilty So that now I can raise my hands over the guilty and dare to say uh, that God promises in this benediction to be for us and to bless us. And so receive it. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.